Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Suicide and suicide attempts have serious emotional, physical, and economic impacts. Suicide can be prevented, and everyone has a role to play to save lives and create healthy, strong individuals, families, and communities. Risk factors, warning signs, and preventing suicide. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Welcome. I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information from doctors and health professionals within your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we are discussing suicide, risk factors, warning signs, and prevention. Joining us in the studio in Brookings are Dr. Matthew Stanley and Dr. Vivek Anand from Avera Medical Group University Psychiatry Associates in Sioux Falls. Welcome. Dr. Stanley, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist with Avera. I've been with Avera for uh, over 20 years. I finished my residency here at uh, uh, USD uh, Med School Residency in Psychiatry. And over the course of my career, I've practiced just about every kind of psychiatry uh, you can imagine. I continue to do ECT and uh, some shock therapy. For yeah, which is shock therapy. Known uh, as yeah, shock therapy. In, in the common vernacular. And then uh, still see patients. And um, a few years ago, I got my addiction board certification as well. So uh, we have been. Uh, Avera as a health system venturing more into addiction as well as our uh, the rest of our behavioral health focus. Very important aspect of care. Correct. Dr. Anand, tell us about you and your background. Yeah, I mean, I'm a child psychiatrist. I went to medical school in India, uh, New Delhi, All India Institute of Medical Sciences, and then came to North Carolina to do a residency and fellowship in child psychiatry. And then I've been at Avera uh, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for the last three years, where I practice child psychiatry and addiction medicine. So I am board certified in general psychiatry, child psychiatry, and addiction medicine. You must spend an awful lot of time keeping up with your CMEs. <laughs> Just keep those board certifications. <laughs> Fabulous. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about suicide. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, 
but please provide contact information when you submit your question so we can send you that prize. So <clears throat> this is Suicide Awareness Month and Dr. Anand, um, why is that important? Why is it important for us to talk about suicide? Well, it's very important to talk about suicide. I mean, it's, uh, it's actually one of the top 10 public health concerns. So it turns out that it's, you know, uh, it's the 10th leading cause of death in this country. And if you look at a younger age group, you know, from uh, 15 to 34, it's anywhere from second to third ranking in the top 10 causes of death. Uh, so this is a preventable uh, death uh, that if addressed, uh, people made aware of, you know, screened for, treated, uh, it can be prevented. And that's why it's important to uh, highlight uh, suicide and talk more about it. Dr. Stanley, what are we doing here in South Dakota to raise awareness and address this crisis? Yeah, I, I think there's many people that are asking that question. What can we do and how do we address this? A couple of things that I would point out, and I would just first say just flat out, there's no single elegant solution. This is going to have to be uh, a course of action that we take over years. It's going to involve not just the health community, but uh, our families, schools, churches, you know, the entire communities are gonna need to engage in this. Because unfortunately, many times those that are at risk of suicide aren't even brought to the attention of providers or uh, caregivers. Um, but there are, uh, I think, several areas where we're trying to improve. You know, one national, and certainly here in South Dakota, change is the National Suicide Crisis and uh, Hotline. So the 988 number, which now you can dial anywhere in the U.S. You'll get a counselor uh, or you'll be directed to help. Um, so single number, very good uh, support system. I know um, here in South Dakota we have a very good group of people working on that. And then, as I said, trying to engage communities. This has been something we've talked about at Avera and in our health system. So we are, uh, this month, rolling out a public service uh, campaign uh, with a very simple, straightforward concept, and that is ask the question. And that, um, that campaign is really about, when it says ask the question, it's to very clearly and candidly ask, are you having thoughts of suicide? Because I think we, we're uncomfortable with that uh, question. We're uncomfortable with the idea that uh, someone we love or care about might be feeling that way. Uh, it often is awkward in our society to talk about our mental health period, but specifically the, severe, the severity of it. And I, and I think that's part of this campaign as well, is uh, I would say that ask the question is critical because um, we don't, and, and history and research would tell us, we're not great at being able to tell who's at risk. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times you've experienced suicide. Dr. Nunn and I have unfortunately experienced it in our profession and outside of our profession. But inevitably, you'll hear someone say, I never would have believed this person was at risk. Uh, and it is, that's why it's critical we ask the question. I think one of the things to address right up front, because people are concerned asking that question will plant a seed or push them toward it, Research has been done on this. I think it's very clear that that's not the case. And in fact, the alternative of not bringing it up um, means really we're, we're left doing nothing. Uh, we're not even aware in so many cases. So 
Uh, as I said, there's, there's a broader component to this as well, though. I would like to see us, uh, and this may be a little idealistic, but instead of talking about mental health and health or physical health, our mental health is part of our health, and it should be as much of a, a part of our conversation. It's ironic, I, I had a meeting with some folks last night, and although they were comfortable talking about things like whether they'd had a vasectomy or whether they had... <laughs> They, you know, the idea that they may have ever had a mental illness was like uncomfortable, right? But they could talk about some of the most sensitive procedures uh, from a society and a physical standpoint, but that mental health area, less comfortable. I think the underlying message in this campaign is we need to move to where our mental health is considered as much a part of our health and our health care and our discussions with those we care about as any other part of our health. We need to take a holistic view of health and wellness and that has to include mental health. There's not a distinction between mental health and physical health at all rolls together. So Dr. Anand, can we always is someone who is at risk for suicide, do they always have suicidal thoughts in advance? Not necessarily. Uh, so the, there's a difference between risk factors and the warning signs. So risk factors, so there's multiple risk factors. So, you know, Native American population is at a higher risk of uh, committing suicide. Caucasian uh, ethnicity is, is, is at a higher risk. Males are higher higher risk, so you know, that would, I mean, you know, 50% of the population is at a higher risk of, uh, uh, of suicide. Uh, but, you know, having, having a risk factor is different from having a warning sign. And warning sign would be, you know, uh, would essentially indicate imminent threat uh, to the person and, the, and themselves. And uh, that is usually, uh, you know, folks are feeling sad, uh, hopeless, helpless, worthless. They feel like a burden they get disconnected from their society, you know, they withdraw. Uh, and so there's a lot of other factors that go into the warning signs. And people who are at a less risk, for example, females, they can also develop warning signs. So anyone can have warning signs. Uh, but you know, the suicide is tricky. I mean, you gotta find out who's at risk and, and when. Uh, so that's where the warning signs come into importance. And I, and I was going to say, I think one of the things, uh, and Dr. Nunn spoke very eloquently there, but I think we have the idea in most illnesses, things kind of, you know, start here and then just slowly either decline or improve, however you want to look at it. When we actually study suicidal ideation throughout an extended period of time, it's clear that it waxes and wanes, not just day to day, but literally hour to hour. So there are moments of intensity throughout a given day, and there are moments where they're at less risk. So it makes it even more complicated, but it, but it does kind of introduce one of our preventative measures, or one of our most um, highly suggested preventative measures, and that's uh, a concept we can talk about a little more, but it's, it's essentially, you know, create a delay between that thought or impulse and the ability to carry out uh, the act. Which kind of ties back, I think you had mentioned that men tend to be at higher risk for completion of suicide than women. Is that because men are more likely to attempt? 
Well, so when it turns out to, when it comes to suicidal ideations and suicide attempts, females are more likely to attempt and have ideations. However, men, when they have suicidal thoughts, they actually resort to lethal ways of killing themselves, uh, usually firearms. So if you look at the statistics, uh, so people who actually die by suicide, uh, almost 60% of men die by firearms. Uh, and followed by you know 30% around you know for, with suffocation. But when you look at uh, females, uh, you know so they they have more suicidal ideations, more suicide attempts. But you know usually they are by cutting, uh, overdosing. So the methods that they employ are not uh, fatal or lethal. Less likely right. to be fatal and lethal. More likely to give us time to do something to intervene after that attempt is made. So I think the, the slogan that I heard about that was means matter. So if I take a bunch of pills, I have a whole lot more time to say, you know, I don't really want to do this and ask for help than if I'm pulling a trigger. Absolutely so correct. That, that gun is important. So we've started to get some questions. So let's get to a couple questions before our first roll in here. We have a caller who suspects a relative is depressed and has low self-esteem. They quit their job. They have no health care or health insurance. Um, the person they're worried about refuses to go to counseling. Is there any advice we can give to this person? And this is a very common situation. So what would you say about that, Matt? Yeah, so it's very hard to get people that are not, uh, using the terminology Dr. Nan said, at, at imminent risk, it's very hard to force them to get treatment. So um, you can, if you believe someone is truly at risk, file for a, a committal or a hold, uh, which is then law enforcement comes out and evaluates the patient. Ultimately, they'd be evaluated by a qualified mental health professional. The risk in that is, uh, if they're not deemed to be dangerous, you've, you've really broken a trust there and probably alienated them even further from uh, seeking help. So I think for all of us, it's, it's uh, similar whether we're talking about mental illness or addiction. I think it's trying to find uh, a way to relate to that person, help them to understand you're coming from a caring position that other people who care about them uh, are greatly affected and concerned uh, and, and really you need to make a, a connection. As Dr. Nand also said, one of the things that people struggle with when they are severely depressed is they have not just a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, but worthlessness, guilt. They really feel they're a burden to others. Um, you need to, I think, express that you care. Ask them to, you know, at least talk with a primary care physician or see a counselor. Or a pastor, a, a faith pastor. leader Absolutely. sometimes is a great yeah. resource. Absolutely. So, sometimes people are far more receptive to talking to their faith leader than they are to talking Absolutely. to one of us. It might even be someone they know who's been through the depression and, and you know, so any way you can get them to begin communicating, to open up, um, I think that's critical and um, it's difficult, without a doubt. You know, one of the, actually two main things are happening when somebody is like really sad and depressed and, uh, and you know, cont contemplating suicide. So one is uh, they, they think that they're a burden on people. Uh, and the second is, you know, social disconnectedness. 
so you know, in, and there's a lot of folks who are living out in the rural areas where you know they have family members who are struggling and they don't know what to do. I think the first thing to do is you know show kindness and compassion. Uh, that you know you are not a burden. Uh, to show companionship, you know, that I'm around, I'm here to help. And then to encourage social connectedness, you know, then you can uh, connect to your parents, to your partner, to your companion, to your friends, uh, spiritual leaders, church, uh, and, and then uh, certainly, you know, the, ask the question. I mean, that's, that's the most important thing because if you don't ask, uh, you're not going to find out. Uh, and, and so that's, that's actually very, very important. And after you have helped them connect with people, if you think you know, they are in imminent danger, then you know, they need to be encouraged to participate in care. And uh, sometimes you may have to take extreme measures like involuntary commitment, uh, but that needs to be done with caution. I like to uh, remind people that depression lies. Depression tells people I'm worthless, nobody cares, I'm a burden, I'd, my family, the people I care about would be better off without me, and that's depression lying. Our next little segment here actually talks a little bit about what that person can do. Even before the pandemic, many people were feeling anxious, depressed, and alone. Suicide rates nationwide have been rising. A response was created with 988 that is answered locally by the Helpline Center in South Dakota, although it is a national number. Sam Shower discussed this with the CEO of the Helpline Center. Janet Kittums is the CEO of the Helpline Center in Sioux Falls. The Helpline Center answers calls from the new 988 number. 988 is a three-digit code that was launched July 16th nationwide, but it's for anyone who needs to call about mental health, substance use, emotional crisis, suicide. Um, it's available 24 hours a day. Janet says since the COVID-19 pandemic, mental health issues have been on the rise, with suicide being one of the bigger issues. So we've seen a higher level just of anxiety and depression, and those are probably the two highest uh, presenting concerns that we hear about on 988, are depression and anxiety, that and family relationship problems. And so I think those were all escalated during the pandemic, and now that we're kind of in that recovery mode from the pandemic, I think we're still seeing a lot of those residual um, effects of that. When someone calls the 988 number, they will be greeted by a qualified staff member to help with any problem. The 988 team is all masters prepared. They have masters in social work or counseling or some other type of advanced degree. During that call, the protocol is to do an assessment of their life and create a safety plan with resources and support in that caller's region. So we have in our database all of the mental health substance use resources across the state of South Dakota. So we oftentimes will connect somebody with perhaps a local community mental health center or a substance use program or a support group for substance use to kind of help them through that crisis period in time. Prior to 988, the mental health line was a 1-800 number, which was difficult to remember. When selecting the new number for the mental health line, the FCC wanted to keep in mind the importance of 911. They have, of course, what are called N11 phone numbers, like 911 and 211. So they considered using one of those, but decided they didn't want to because they wanted to elevate 988 to the same level as 911. So they wanted it to start with the number 9. The changing of 988 made the number easier to remember, but 988 also added more than just calling. 
It also offered a chat and a text feature. We didn't have that before. So now people can text 988 or chat with us through a link on our website. And with September being nationally recognized as Suicide Prevention Month, the helpline is ready for all calls, chats, and texts. So there's oftentimes a lot of attention drawn to the crisis phone number, which in this case is going to be 988. So we are kind of gearing up and anticipating that our call volume is going to increase during the month of September. That's such an important feature, and I'm really glad we were able to kind of raise attention, raise awareness of that. Vivek, um, why is the chat and text component important? It is actually very important because uh, one of the things that people encounter when they're depressed and experiencing suicidal ideations or, you know, planning for that is, you know, there's a lot of taboo around it, so they don't want to speak about it. The second thing is, you know, they are withdrawing, you know, they are withdrawn from, you know, uh, connecting with the society. So they are not really um, in the mindset of talking. Uh, the other factor is, you know, there's a lot of younger people who experience suicidal ideations at a much higher rate. Like I said, you know, it's the second and third cause of uh, death when it comes to uh, age groups 15 to 34. And those folks are more savvy with, uh, with texting and uh, chatting. Uh, compared to uh, older folks, uh, more than you know, 60 or 70 years old, which are more likely to pick up the phone and, and talk with someone. I have teenagers myself, and I'm pretty sure that 95% of their communication with their friends is via text and, and messaging, and I rarely hear them on the phone. Very different experience from my childhood years. Uh, and that leads into another observation, another question that, uh, that a caller had here. Um, with the increase in student depression, um, and they relate that to COVID isolation, I'm going to ask you guys if that is the cause here in a bit, are schools doing anything differently to approach these concerns? And that's a caller from Sioux Falls wondering that. Vivek, I know you have an emphasis on children, so that's probably right. a question that you're uniquely... Right, right. Uh, COVID pandemic was a tough time for all of us, uh, especially for youngsters, uh, especially for children uh, who go to school. And because, you know, friendships are really important. They spend uh, a third to half of their day in school. With the pandemic, that got disrupted. Uh, so they had to stay at home. Uh, they were not connected with their friends. So that was expected to cause high volumes of suicidal ideations. Uh, plans and suicide attempts. Now that data is not out yet, so we do, are not really clear as to how did the pandemic affect the suicide rate. However, when you look at the suicidal ideations that were impacted, I know my inpatient service at Avera uh, Hospital was running very busy uh, when uh, the pandemic was going on. Uh, so uh, it, it did disrupt uh, a lot of things. Uh, I, I forgot what, the, what was the question actually. Well, one thing I want, so was this a crisis? Was this a problem before? I mean, is it the pandemic that caused this crisis for the I, I adolescents? Think, I think pandemic uh, uh, was one of the, you know, factors that sort of precipitated suicidal ideations and, and plans in some youngsters' mind. Uh, it may have uh, partly uh, caused a spike uh, in, 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 you know, these thoughts. Uh, now. There were a lot of solutions that came out of it too. 
so you know uh, there was uh, folks were getting educational instructions over the computer so even though they were not physically present in the classroom they were virtually connected so schools did uh, some of that uh, it also led to emergence of telemedicine big time uh, so there is a lot of good benefits that came out of pandemic too but it certainly caused a spike in in, in people's uh, mental state and, um, and and thinking about ending their lives. I think it's important to recognize though that the problem was increasing in our youth right. even before the pandemic. The pandemic was certainly not to indulge in the pun, but a death blow to mental health. I think for a lot of yeah. a lot of individuals, but there was a crisis before the yeah, pandemic. We, we had literally a decade of increasing suicide rates, uh, with without a clear explanation. Right. I mean, so suicide was escalating. Uh, I think from like 2002, in fact, up until like 2018, as you said, when when our data was it was a 35 percent or so increase. I mean, and and what we were seeing. Uh, were younger uh, suicidal thoughts. So one of the fastest growing demographics uh, for suicide risk, still not a large number, but females 10 to 14. When I was a resident, take 25 years ago, a 10-year-old female with suicidal ideation was a rarity. Unfortunately, it's not that rare anymore. Um, so you are absolutely correct. This was a trend that was moving in the wrong direction for quite a while. And as Dr. Anand said, it's not like we made progress. We used to say, or up until some of the latest data, it's the second leading cause from 10 to 35. The only reason it's now the third leading cause from 15 to, uh, or for from 14 to 25, is homicide jumped ahead of it. So it's now the third leading cause in that age group, but homicide or suicide, it isn't good news, right? It's not like we got better um, and that data, they're actually very close. But I think a couple of other lessons. I do think the Sioux Falls School District is responding and is very aware. I know we've done some education with them. We have <clears throat> created a new partial hospital program for adolescents, meaning kids can remain engaged with, uh, and this is in Sioux Falls with the Avera Behavioral Health Center. They can be engaged in school um, during the, the morning hours but they will still get 20 hours per week of intensive group and individual therapy in our facility. So it's called a partial hospital program. They're able to be home with their families, they're able to be in school, but they still get very intense therapies. So I think the other, if I took another lesson from COVID involving schools, it's how critical they are in our communities as a safety net, especially for those that are maybe the least privileged or have the least resources. Because I think that's another thing we saw was when that safety net was pulled away, there were many children uh, that were left, I won't say to fend for themselves, but had very few resources, supports, or people to go to when they needed help. So our schools uh, were blessed that they perform, uh, you know, what used to be a common uh, kind of community effort. They are. Uh, our safety net in these young ages. And I think they're very aware of it and, and acting very responsibly in that area. Obviously, an area that there's a lot of room for development and a lot of room for for hope mm -hmm. there. So um, we have a caller here who is wondering, two questions that I think are very, very similar here. Uh, is it possible to predict suicide? And what are the warning signs of suicide, Vivek? 
Well, I mean, to, uh, so there's a lot of warning signs. So 90% of the people who are going to uh, die by suicide struggle with psychiatric illnesses. Um, now, say, most times it's major depressive disorder, so they, most people who are going to commit suicide are displaying these signs. So, uh, like we discussed, you know, hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness, uh, problems with sleep, energy, changes in, uh, you know, their behavior, uh, you know, talking about uh, suicide, talking about uh, suicide in a passive way, how would things be if I wasn't here or I would not be a problem uh, for more time or, you know, actually having active uh, thoughts of hurting themselves or planning uh, that, writing a note, writing poems, writing letters to loved ones, uh, all those are warning signs uh, of, of, of suicide. And, uh, and sorry, what was the, is it possible to predict yeah. what are the warning signs? Right, right. You've, you've just answered both right, of those. Right. And actually another one um, you talked a little bit about, which is the correlation between mental health and suicide, which is very high, as you say, especially right. with depression. What other diagnoses Matt, might increase a person's risk yeah. for suicidal, suicidal ideation? Well, there's, there's several. So uh, when we do talk about this, the, the mental health diagnosis, it's primarily some form of depression. But if you combine that with substance abuse, rates uh, and risk goes up remarkably. Uh, chronic or, or uh, severe mental illness can also elevate that risk. So those are, those are two of the ones that, uh, you know, comorbid psychiatric disorders, but anyone with chronic pain, uh, that will elevate their risk. Um, and there's also like non-psychiatric, non-medical risk factors, financial blow, relationship uh, disturbance, legal concerns. But what, what is difficult, and I, and I love the question, can you predict suicide? So, Dr. Anand described the risk factors, and you know when we look at studies, we're in, we're we're aware of the difference between sensitivity and specificity. So we can get a very broad signal of who's at risk, and in fact, it's a large number of people. But of that large number, only a very small percentage will actually go ahead and attempt and complete to, uh, complete the killing themselves. It's very hard to pick them out of the crowd based on those risk factors. Which takes us back to ask the question, but also does challenge us to continue to develop better ways of predicting and understanding suicide. I would also say this, when we look at our own data within our own health system, and we look at people that have completed suicide, less than half of those is, have actually been in treatment by a behavioral health specialist. They have been seeing someone for something else in our system uh, and the next thing we know, they are deceased from a cause of death of suicide. So we, we, we cross-match uh, our data with the state vital registry so we can tell who amongst our patients is committing suicide. But, it, but the implication isn't that most of these people are identified and we're treating them in it. For the most part, they're not even identified as being at risk. They're not even necessarily identified as being depressed. It's only retrospectively as we look that we realize, yes, this person was depressed, yes, they had risk, and we didn't become aware of it. We didn't find it out, yeah. which is why it's important to ask the question. Kevin Wooster had struggled with anxiety and depression all his life, even admitting himself to psychiatric wards sometimes. 
but he'd never talked about suicide. That changed when he made a passing remark to his wife about killing himself. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with Kevin to hear the whole story. Kevin Wooster is a semi-retired journalist for South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Ever since Kevin was little, he was a hunter and around guns, which continued into his journalism career. What I loved most to write about was the outdoors, hunting and fishing, wildlife and fisheries, environmental stuff. So that was both my love and part of my life to, to have a gun in my hand. And so it's been part of my life since I was 10. Throughout Kevin's life, he has struggled with anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. Over a year and a half ago, he developed health problems and couldn't read or watch TV without nausea. The doctors couldn't figure out what was happening and Kevin became agitated. One day, he had a frightening thought. Why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. And that was an unusual thought. And I think my wife, Mary, came back. She'd been out somewhere in the evening and came back and I said, you know, maybe I should just go downstairs and get a gun and blow my head off. After saying that thought to his wife, Kevin knew and felt how dangerous those words were, and his wife acted right away. I didn't argue with her at all. The next day, the guns, you know, I have eight or nine guns. Uh, they went over to the neighbor's house. They stayed there for quite a while. Kevin soon got help from psychiatrists, prescription meds, and talks with friends and family. Although he still struggled with those thoughts for a while, he says admitting and asking for help is the best thing to do. To be able to express that right away, an hour after I felt it, uh, uh, to, to be able to say it, because saying it, I think, matters. Out loud, say it. And say it in front of someone who's going to do something with it and help you and start a process, which is what that did. It started a process. Kevin's children were also big supporters, and they helped him remember how much he matters in their life. My two kids, I have two biological children and four uh, stepchildren, and I got support from all of them. And, uh, but just to see the kids that I grew, that I raised, you know, and, and held right after they were born, um, as adults drop everything to come, to come be with me, I think is a reminder. Thankfully, Kevin hasn't had those thoughts in months and has a message to anyone who is struggling with similar feelings. You know, you just got to talk about it. We, we just, we just got to not hide it or not be ashamed of it. Um, talk. Like I said, I got a lot of weaknesses, but, but keeping my mouth shut about my emotions has never been one of them. such a powerful experience and such a powerful um, thing that he was willing to talk about his experience there, which is so important in reducing the stigma because mental health issues are so common. And when is the right time for someone to talk about how they're feeling and when they're having those thoughts? At what point should they, if they are feeling up to it, be willing to say that to somebody? Matt? Yeah. You know, mental health, uh, I've already encouraged that we talk about health in general and yes. not say mental health yes. and health, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, fail my own uh, suggestion here. Well, I talk about cardiac health and bone health, sure. so we can talk about mental health. 
Mental health is no different than any other health issue though in that the sooner you get help, typically the better the response and the easier to treat. So I would say, you know, to anyone who's struggling, don't wait until it feels like you're at the lowest point or, you know, you can't go on. Uh, that makes it harder for you and harder to treat. So like any illness, as soon as you're aware that you have a problem or the, or the sooner the better, then seek treatment. And if you're not comfortable talking to your doctor right away, talk to a close friend, family member. I'm really advocating that we start having candid conversations with the people we care about, about how we are feeling and where we're at. And I think you said something that's critical earlier. You know, when you talk about people that the depression lies to the mind. So I think one of the errors that people make is they feel, well, I've been depressed before. It's not that big a deal. There's a, depression, there's a difference between having a depressed day or a sad day or a down day and depression. Depression is an illness. It is so powerful, it can make you think you hear people talking to you that are not there. That's, you know, those are called delusions and hallucinations. A depressed mind can take you that far. It can certainly convince you of things that aren't true, like you are worthless or you'd be better off dead or people would be better off without you. So never underestimate the power of depression just because you've not experienced it. Dr. Anand, if somebody tells you, I'm thinking about suicide, if you ask the question and then they say yes, what should you do? Well, then you gotta ask uh, uh, more detailed questions. Uh, so if they have been... If, if I'm a, a layperson, and if I'm just the, your neighbor and you mention we're having coffee and you mention it, what should the neighbor do? I know as us as clinicians, yeah, that's really yeah. important for us to ask those detailed questions, but what, would, what advice would you give our when viewers? When somebody endorses suicidal ideations, first thing is to uh, show that you are with them in this time of need and that you, uh, that you are trying to understand and that you want for them to seek help. And then the conversation should focus on how to get that help. And that help can be uh, through family members or through virtual uh, online uh, sources or in person, uh, see a pastor, see a doctor, see a therapist, go to the hospital, so on and so forth. Dr. Stanley, uh, we have a uh, question about what treatment options and therapies are available. And I think this also relates to a question that somebody else had asked about, I think they, they mentioned TMF, but I think they mean transcranial magnetic stimulation. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so I think there are a number of powerful treatments. As you know, antidepressants uh, widely prescribed by primary care physicians as well as psychiatrists and other specialists. They certainly have a place uh, early on in the treatment or in, in maybe less complicated cases. As we move up the ladder of complication, um, I've had great success myself with transcranial magnetic stimulation. I think it is an effective treatment. It is a time commitment because it's usually daily treatments for you know up to 30 treatments. So it's, uh, it's a fairly um, time intensive procedure, but uh, typically without pain and without any kind of cognitive uh, disturbance. Electroconvulsive therapy is our uh, by uh, evidence, by studies, our most effective treatment for depression, uh, coming in at sometimes 80 or even 90%, depending on the study. Uh, that's a procedure, has to be done in a hospital facility, and there's only a few places around that offer that. So, but there's a broad array of different 
treatment. You really need to get to start with your primary care or get to a specialist to get started. Yeah, there's a lot of options. The first step is getting, in the, getting. into the system. So, a uh, viewer observes, some studies say that if a family member dies by suicide, then other family members are at higher risk for, for s completing suicide. What do you guys think about that, Vivek? Yeah, so that is true, and, and that, uh, that highlights the importance of post-suicide interventions uh, within the family or you know, the support group. Because a lot of times they, there is assumption of inappropriate guilt that they may have saved this person, and, uh, which did not happen, of course, and then they start internalizing that guilt, and that leads to suicidal ideations in, in the close family members or the friend group, and that can increase their risk uh, and put them at imminent danger of hurting themselves. So this is also a sort of crisis where folks need to reach out uh, to a trusted adult uh, or to a companion or to a health professional. It is devastating. And you don't even have to be close to the person that was lost to suicide to be devastated. No, we see it, it in communities. We see that kind of suicide contagion. That was another person who had a question, what is suicide contagion and what can you do? Yeah, and I can think of some communities um, in Sioux Falls that have, or, no, I'm sorry, in South Dakota that have experienced this. And often I think it is the smaller communities, a little tighter, a little more, you know, the information moves around much quicker and they may have known the person who committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So contagion is not so much when we spoke about a family member uh, committing suicide after another family and that risk factor. But within the community, uh, you have one teenager commit suicide, a few weeks later another and another, um, and it just seems to have this contagion effect. Um, and there are some different explanations for this, um, but it, to Dr. Anand's point, that's why I think you see schools and communities much more proactive in post-suicide intervention now because we know the risk uh, it can have in a community and we know how this can have a ripple effect that's very traumatic. If someone is posting suicidal messages on social media, what, what can someone do? If I read a message from someone that makes me worry about them, Dr. Anand? Yeah, so if you see a suicidal message being posted, you know, usually that's by a younger individual and that is a way of seeking help. So this person probably doesn't have uh, uh, intentions to commit suicide, but they are asking for help. And the first thing is, you know, reach out to them. Uh, ask them about suicide. Ask them if they are planning to hurt themselves or kill themselves. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, help out with triaging them to uh, appropriate resources uh, available in town. I think what's difficult, too, at, at certain age groups, um, you know, if that person won't get help voluntarily, I mean, I do think you have to involve, you know, a trusted adult right. and get other people involved. Uh, it's, you know, it, we're worried about the person committing suicide, but as you pointed out, uh, post-suicide mention, the person who's aware has a tremendous burden on them too, and it's not something we want kids and adolescents to handle alone. I understand that uh, you know, there's honor and, and trust and things about confidentiality and, and you want to respect that to a point, but when someone just isn't responding and you feel there's a risk, you need to reach out to someone you trust who has greater authority or, or greater knowledge and get help. You don't have to 
teenagers shouldn't be handling this by themselves. No. That no. is that is too much of a burden. And, to and put this on may them. also qualify for you know involving uh, involuntary commitment mm -hmm. uh, process uh, if if and you know they are not savvy towards getting help. And you are a good being a good friend right. to bring yeah. that to yes. the attention of teachers. This is how you save a life. Right. That's right. Uh, we have a caller who wonders what role drug use has on suicide, especially in the young. Yeah, well, as I said, substance use definitely an elevated risk factor. Um, I think there are many things, and, and we've debated, and I don't know if it's worth getting into now, you know, which comes first, the depression or the substance use. Uh, I am sure there's, uh, it's bimodal, it probably moves both ways. But one of the things that protects us when we're having thoughts that we shouldn't is our natural inhibitions. One of the things substance use does is lower our inhibitions. Particularly with adolescents, we see, uh, we talked about the, the waxing and waning of suicidal thoughts. We see impulsive acts in adolescents. They can greatly be fueled by substance use. So when you have someone who's having thoughts of suicide and you mix in substance use, I think you've created you know, a flammable mixture. And so uh, there's, there's a large number of suicides that are completed that involve substance use. Also, substance use over time will often lead to depression. It will lead to other failures, school-related, uh, relationship-related, financial-related, legal-related. So you start to stack up uh, risk events that push you toward hopelessness and suicidal ideation. So clearly, uh, it is a very major concern. We have a question about, are there biological factors? Are there inherited issues that increase a person's risk for suicidality and suicide? Briefly, we've got a couple more questions. Yeah. So we want to get to as many as we can. There are a lot of biological factors. So uh, it, is, it, it is postulated that 30 to 40% of uh, a major depressive disorder is inherited. Uh, and uh, so you, know, you have a genetic burden that puts you at a higher risk of suicide. Now, uh, combined with that, uh, if you have the right sort of stressor at the right sort of time, uh, that leads to epigenetic changes that actually produces uh, a person uh, to become suicidal. Uh, and we have a lot of people who have suicide, have right. mental illness in the family, also grow up in stressful childhood homes, right. and that increases your risk yeah. too. Genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. Yeah, and no. you know, and that leads to changes in the brain too. You know, there yeah. are so many theories about serotonin and uh, you know epithalamic structures. You know, just causing uh, increased risk of uh, depression and suicide. So, um, two more questions we have that we'd like to try to get to here, uh, and I think this one is really important. How can I help prevent suicide in my community, my workplace, my school, or my peer group? What can I, as a concerned individual, but maybe not with a specific person I'm worried about, what can I do? Dr. Stanley. Very succinctly, I know we're out of time. So I would say get involved in the community because I think things like ask the question, mean safety, which is this concept where uh, we talk about putting guns, not, not taking guns away, this isn't a second, second Amendment issue. This just means put a gun lock or a gun safe in every home that has guns because Putting any difficulty between that, that thought and that action is potentially life-saving. So I, I just think community activity, this has to come from communities, work with the school, work with the law enforcement, whoever it is, just get involved. 
raise awareness. Be willing right. to talk. The winner of our prize tonight is Christy from Sioux Falls. Thank you, Christy, and thank everybody for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you soon. We'll be back after this. Listen today to the Prairie Doc Podcast, a weekly show hosted by Laura Ellsworth, as she talks with medical professionals, takes questions, and walks us through important health topics affecting those in our communities. Search for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcast today. One summer during my undergrad years, I had a roommate who suffered from suicidal thoughts. She had attempted suicide before we met and been hospitalized, but continued to struggle. Back in the late 80s, there was very little public understanding of mental health issues, and the stigma was even stronger than it is today. Her other roommate and I didn't know what to do or where to turn. Not surprisingly, we didn't handle it well. However, we did one thing right. We restricted access to lethal means. We secured the knives and took control of her medications. Back before Prozac, the best treatments were lethal if used to overdose. It's tempting to view people with mental illness as somehow different from the rest of us. On some level, I think we expect that to mean we can't be affected. We want to believe it won't touch us. However, Suicide crosses all boundaries. Anyone can develop suicidal thoughts, so everyone needs to be able to recognize the danger signs and know what to do. Risk factors for suicide include a previous suicide attempt, a family history of suicide, and a personal or family history of mental illness or substance use. Living with chronic pain or having experienced violence or abuse in the family are also significant risks. Other stressful life events, such as incarceration, a job loss, a breakup, bullying, make a difference as well. There are often, although not always, warning signs. Watch for talk about being a burden, about feeling hopeless or worthless, about unbearable pain, and about death. There may be mood swings, anger or anxiety, withdrawal from loved ones or activities, or unusual risk-taking. Sometimes the signs are more dramatic. There may be overt talk of suicide and actions that suggest preparation for death, saying goodbye, giving away treasured possessions, drafting a will. A person might research methods of suicide and take steps to implement a plan, such as buying a gun. Don't consider talk of suicide to be a bid for attention. It is a cry for help. Of course, recognizing risk isn't enough. We need to know what to do. The first step is to ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? Asking won't plant the seed. It's okay. In fact, it's crucial to ask. Try to keep the person safe by reducing access to means of suicide. Listen and try to understand what they are thinking and feeling. Connect them to help via the crisis line or another source of support and assistance. Stay in touch. 
Emily, if you ever see this, your life matters. You matter. I wish we'd understood how to show you that. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Stanley and Dr. Anand, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about suicide and what we can do to help prevent it. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Sports injuries are common and can occur throughout your body to bones, muscles, tendons, ligaments, and other structures. You can treat many minor injuries at home, but some injuries require medical treatment. Sports medicine, prevention and risks, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Based on science, built on trust. Join us in supporting the Prairie Docs as we enter our 21st season. Hello, my name is Dave Heink, and I serve on the volunteer board of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This past year, we celebrated 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information from our four Prairie Docs, each of whom volunteers their time to answer important health questions. Thank you to our viewers who continue to help make this programming possible. You are making a difference for public health information in our state. Your donation allows us to continue to deliver on Rick and Joni Holmes' mission set out over two decades ago. As a friend, supporter, and volunteer for this organization, I believe in its mission and I know the vital impact it makes in our communities. Please continue to follow us on social media, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, you may make a donation online at prairiedoc.org. Prefer not to donate online? Reach out to us via email and our staff will send you a pledge form. Thanks again for supporting our mission and Prairie Doc programming. Medical information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care, and coverage. Hello Possibility. Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brickings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, 
Pierre District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.